Good morning, it's Laura Huey and you're joining me for Sociology 9009, which is the Graduate Seminar on Evidence-Based Policy. I'm going to kick things off by introducing my co-hosts, Chewbacca and Lucy. Mr. Huey, not his real name, is upstairs somewhere and is likely to start bellowing at some point during this recording. And of course, my dogs will bark at everything that moves outside. Welcome to also not just Sociology 9009, but also Quarantine Life, Day 847. I want to kick things off by talking about the question, what does it mean to be evidence-based? A lot of people that might be taking this course are thinking, oh, we're going to learn how to evaluate policy. We are not. We are going to be focusing on this question of evidence-based, from a scientific point of view, and how do we take that evidence base and communicate that to decision makers and influencers. And when I say influencers, I'm not talking about Kim Kardashian on Instagram. I'm talking about the general public, community groups, not the nonprofit sector. Uh, what are those groups? Why, why do we want to target them? Because we want them to understand the evidence base on a lot of important public policy questions that social scientists can contribute to so that we can help influence better policy making. So we also want to be able to communicate to policymakers, uh, practitioners, and so on. Uh, here we go. Of course, I am a criminologist, so I have to explain everything in terms of criminology. It also helps that most most of my students over the years have been completely addicted to programs like CSI, Criminal Minds, and so on. So I'm going to put this uh, idea of evidence-based, we're going to start to unpack this in thinking through CSI. What is evidence? A lot of times people confuse evidence with data. Data is just data. The example I like to use because I'm secret, secretly addicted to Cheetos um, or cheese puffs is what, what use is it to know that 12% of people in the general population like Cheetos? This is a tragic mistake that we see social scientists making all the time, though they ought to know better. You know, they'll be cited in a media article making a statement like this. And what's missing, of course, is the context for understanding why that might be important. In terms of understanding nutrition, public health, uh, COVID, you know, maybe eating Cheetos might be a factor in, you know, co uh, COVID, uh, you know, having worse symptoms for COVID than not. In other words, knowing a fact in and of itself is not super helpful. It becomes evidence when there's an interpretation of that data. So we say that it has to be evidence for or against something. An argument, an opinion, when we say opinion, that's not like what you hear at um, Thanksgiving dinner or some other type of family gathering. We're talking about a, a professional opinion from a scientist, a point of view, or if you wish to be all sciencey, which of course I do, we could say a, a hypothesis. And where CSI comes in is when you think about the difference between, when you watch those shows, between a clue and evidence. A clue might be a sneaker found half a block away in an abandoned lot uh, near a crime scene. 
in and of itself, that sneaker, having the knowledge of that sneaker, it might be a, it's a clue, but it might be a useful clue or a not useful clue in helping you to solve the crime. What if it turns out that three weeks before somebody dropped a sneaker out of their bag, their gym bag? That, that's not helpful. However, if it turns out that this particular sneaker matches the tread pattern found at, at the crime scene in some mud, we can start to put a picture together. We can start to build an interpretation around not just this clue, but an understanding of what took place at the crime scene. That, my friends, is evidence. It becomes evidence for something in the criminal justice system when we get to charging and, of course, going to court. Then it becomes le it's legal evidence at that point. I like to use this analogy because I think it actually helps us understand what we mean when we talk about evidence in a scientific context. Um, oftentimes, we hear a lot of discussion about best evidence. Here's the thing, a lot, unfortunately, a lot of really important public policy issues, we don't really have very good research evidence. That's the fact. Certainly in my area, which is criminal justice, that is the case. The best available evidence in many situations is, <clears throat> is the evidence that uses the appropriate research methods and sources for the question being asked. Um, if you are Googling things and pulling things off websites, that's probably not necessarily going to be the best evidence. Research should be carefully conducted, peer-reviewed and transparent about its methods, its limitations, and how the conclusions were reached. This, of course, as you know, because you're grad students, this is Grad Student 101. But it bears repeating because a lot of times when um, policymakers and practitioners are hunting around trying to answer a policy question, they are not necessarily relying on research that is carefully conducted, peer-reviewed, and transparent. So part of our mantra as evidence-based scientists has to be those three things. And, you know, I, I, I swear I don't drink, but if I ever get a drunken tattoo, I think those three things will be on a part of my drunken tattoo. Where does the concept of evidence-based come from? It comes from several evidence-based movements. The big one uh, most people are familiar with is evidence-based medicine. Medicine has, um, it, it like uh, other fields of practice, rely, has relied traditionally a lot on clinicians making practical judgments based on their experience. Way back when I was a kid, we used to have house calls. The doctor would come to the house, take a look at you. It was usually some old country doctor uh, who'd been in, you know, been practicing for 50 years, take one look at you and say, oh, you've got this. And you would get treated for that and then the doctor would drive off. There was no, there was not a lot of reliance on science and research with the exception, of course, of new treatments to do with uh, pharmacology and certain types of new devices and so on. But that said, there wasn't a lot of research done on things like surgery, believe it or not. Which surgical procedures produce the best outcomes? Which particular treatment forms produce the best outcomes? 
the um, I highly there's some fantastic books about the opioid uh, crisis and some of those books highlight the fact that actually there was not only was this a public health is this a public health crisis but it's also one that was uh, significantly generated in parts of the US and Canada by poor clinical practices and poor research practices. What am I talking about? Uh, back in the 90s, early 2000s, when opioids started to be introduced as part of a pain management regimen, um, there was this sort of sense that people shouldn't be in pain, which I completely agree with. And so one study that was very poorly done, uh, but somehow got published, suggested that there was no there was no addictive properties in a managed clinical setting for the use of opioid, opioids. And guess what? They were wrong. And so doctors were handing out pain drugs without a clear understanding of the fact that they were actually addicting their patients. And there, because there was no research on this, there was also no really good research on how to withdraw people from these types of drugs. And so evidence-based medicine comes along and says, you know what, clinical judgment is important, but we also have to understand through science what works and what doesn't work. And as part of that, we also have to think about the impact on our communities, our, or in this case, our patients, what their preferences are, what their value systems are. So the three things together become evidence-based medicine. We also have evidence-based management. I spent five years working on evidence-based policing. There's evidence-based nursing and so on. When we talk about an evidence-based, uh, most people have no idea that there's actually sections of the scientific research community that is fascinated with this question of what is an evidence base, what is a good base, what is not a good base. Too often people think that evidence base means I found some studies that I cherry pick from a lit review that say what I want them to say and so therefore this is a good practice. And let's be honest, it's not just policymakers and practitioners who do that. I've seen researchers do that. When we talk about an evidence base, we are talking about the entire sum of research on a particular question or issue. And we are talking about better versus worse. There goes Chewie. There he goes. He doesn't like bad evidence. Oh, NLC2. Hang on. Let me, let me go and silence the pups. Come here, pups. Would you like some bribery? Come on. Come on, guys. Bribery, bribery works. Oops, damn it. Ha ha, bribery works every time. I told you there was no way I would get through this without interruptions. Okay, so when we talk about an evidence base, we are talking, as I said, about the total sum of, of research on a particular topic or issue. 
Some evidence-based practitioners like to focus on high quality research. I'll talk a bit, a bit about that in a second. Others take a more realist perspective. We'll talk about Pawson in an upcoming um, section who believes you should take all evidence, whether or not it's high quality, low quality, etc. Because even low quality studies, Pawson would argue, have something useful to tell you. Now, let's, let's unpack what typically happens in media discourse around how research is used and then use that as an opportunity to explain why researchers need to do a better job of countering how our work comes out in, in media and public discourse. My Twitter feed is full of all sorts of different things, including uh, a few years back, that a study that was put out in a UK newspaper and it was why elderly deaths from abuse are part of a wider pattern of violence against women. And as the media typically does, they show a picture of a very sweet little old lady. <coughs> of course, it's also allergy season. See, if I was clever, I would edit all this out, but I'm not that clever. I'm actually, or I guess it's not clever, I'm lazy. So here we go. They show you this picture of this this poor woman who was um, found at it, presumably was murdered in her home. And you see this and you have an emotional reaction. We typically do. Um, and that's the point. You're gonna stop and look at this and you're gonna think, wow, this is like, this is terrible. So, the particular study, and sorry, I just realized I've cut off part of the slide. Um, this, the study that was cited said, shows that there was national data, uh, that there were 1,601 victims of murder between 2011 and 12 and 2013-14, the majority of which were men. But official, while official data shows men are still murdered at a higher rate than women in later life, then we go on, I'm gonna skip all this part. Women who are at the eldest end of the spectrum are disproportionately at risk compared to men. In other words, elderly women are disproportionately at risk of being murdered compared to men. This sounds terrible, but the scientist in me immediately sees a trick. This is why I actually hate math. I'm not a statistician, but you don't need to be a statistician to understand logic. And so what I did, I immediately sent, I immediately spotted the trick and I went out to prove it was a trick and to, sh and to unpack how that was done. So I went to the UK census data for 2014. And what I found is, and of course there's a type one this down slide, which I have been meaning to correct for I don't know like however many years but I eventually I will get to it. Six there's 64 million people in the UK. Of the 64 million, 233 men and women over the age of six, 60 and over were murdered. So this is now a very I'm not I'm not minimizing this but I want to be clear from a statistical point of view it's a very low number. Your chances are probably equivalent to being struck by lightning. Certainly, uh, you know, vehicle-related deaths would be higher than that. For males aged 75 
and up, there are 218,000 approximately males. 39 were murdered. 39 of this group were murdered in the, in the study period. Females aged 75 and above, there's 250,000. And 61 of them were murdered. So in this context, we start to say, hmm, what's going on here? Well, the trick is this. More women are likely to be murdered or otherwise die from some type of abuse situation or neglect or so on when you are 75 and older because there are more women alive who live to be 75 and over than there are men. Statistically, it, we should expect to see high, higher rates of mortality in this category. Now, I'm still not, again, we're not minimizing the fact that people are being murdered. Let's be clear about that. But what we are saying is that how this story was framed made it seem like there was a huge public health crisis involving elderly women being murdered, but the actual absolute numbers are small and the way the story was framed was made, yeah, I don't need to beat this horse. That was a bad, bad example. All right, clearly I need more coffee. Let's keep it moving. Here's another example of media framing of a public health issue. This was from the Toronto Star a couple of years back. I see this come across my Twitter feed. Mental health issues take a toll on half of GTA workers and employers too. Now, apparently Hamilton is now part of the GTA area. So that was the first issue I flagged. And they cite this 1.5 million workers in this area, Toronto, Hamilton, have experienced a mental health issue resulting in $17 billion in lost productivity. Well, ding, ding, ding. Immediately I'm like, hmm, that's very interesting because the studies that I have seen and those studies have huge problems as well, suggest that the lifetime prevalence rate for mental health is about one in five people over your entire lifetime, not now, over your lifetime. And part of that prevalence rate includes things like depression, includes things like anxiety, includes, you know, um, things of that nature that, you know, are not, are not that uncommon in the uh, crazy chaotic world that we live in. So, I'm like suspicious. So what did I do? I went to figure out where these numbers came from. And they, the article cited a study that was done apparently by this group, Civic Action. So I went to find the actual study and what I found was a brochure. And the brochure just repeats all the talking points that were in the news article. Here's the brochure. Now, this is not, go back to what I said about evidence-based and things like transparency. This is not very transparent in terms of how they figured out that 1.5 million people uh, have, uh, have experienced a mental health issue that's causing $17 billion in lost productivity. So, oops. And of course I cut this off. <sighs> I really need more coffee this morning. So I did what I do, which is I actually emailed civic action and said, I want to know how you arrived at your estimated rates of mental health problems within the GTHA 
and what sources you drew upon to come up with the figures published. It would also be helpful to have a definition of mental health issue. I want to know, in terms of mental health, what did you actually include? So I got a response back. The response was, see these studies we have done in the area of mental health. So, okay, so now I have to go back and chase after these three studies that you cited. Now, most people would give up at this point. I did not. So I actually went through the three studies and what I found was that there were huge issues in terms of what they used. First of all, they used studies that included the, the included or were based on populations other than Canada. Or even not just not just the GTHA, but Canada. So there were studies that looked at like Australia and so on. So the other thing as well is this was meant to be a study about people who are workers and they relied on like the studies they relied on relied on other studies oh that was the other point i should mention these weren't the, the three studies they cited were actually based on a bunch of other studies that were included so they didn't go out and collect primary data so uh, here we go. Data, um, some of it's for Ontario, some of it's for uh, Manitoba. So they looked at things like mood disorders, anxiety disorders, things that we would consider to be mental health. And then we get into, oh, a study that includes cognitive impairment, including dementia. Most people would not think of dementia as being a mental health issue or one that might necessarily impact 1.5 billion people, or sorry, 1.5 million workers. I just, clearly I need more coffee. Um, and so we start to see, okay, so you relied on some stuff that we're, probably wasn't super great. Here's another one. Um, and one is, you know, again, we've got, here we go, a study about workers and it says that, uh, the ages were 65 plus and include mild cognitive impairment that would clearly be as a result of, of aging and dementia. Here we've got another one where data excludes children under the age of nine. Well, that's fantastic, but I don't know how many 10 year olds are actually working in the GTHA. So again, we start to unpack all this stuff. Here was, I actually then drilled down into specific study, into some of the, I went into the weeds as they say, to look to see, and of course, the studies that their studies relied on uh, had, as I said, limitations. Here's one, because insufficient population data, the population-based data on illnesses occurring below the age of nine years was available. The model was based on a conservative simplifying assumption that children aged eight years and younger have no mental illness or chronic disease. Okay, well, we don't really need to understand about eight, what eight-year-olds are doing because they're hopefully not working in the GTHA. However, for those of you that are wondering, conservative simplifying assumption is fancy term for we guessed. So now we are not just looking at studies that use studies, but the studies that use studies, those other studies have assumptions in them or guesses. 
Here's another one. Because of the lack of longitudinal data on child and adolescent disorders in Canada, meta-analysis of data from three longitudinal cohort studies from New Zealand and the United States was used to estimate the transition. Again, we're not super interested in children. This is, however, uh, an example of we didn't actually have enough studies, any data for Canada, so now we're going to go and look at studies that were done in New Zealand and the United States. So what else did you cherry pick? So this is why when you see those headlines in the news, on your Reddit, on your Twitter, and you're like, oh, you need to take a critical stance on this and start to think through, first of all, does that logically make sense? And second of all, what's the source of the data? We, those are two major public policy issues that we are just referencing. And yet, the, the public discourse around it is based on flawed assumptions, problematic framing, uh, and everything else that you could imagine. Data that's not even freaking relevant. Definitional problems. Uh, we could pick apart... Like I said, the GTA or the GTHA, are we talking about, what do you mean by mental health? Does mental health include cognitive impairment as a, the due to uh, metabolic or, for example, um, external factors like a workplace accident? Is that something we would consider mental health? I wouldn't consider that a mental health problem. This is the kind of stuff that is influencing public policy. This is the kind of stuff where we need to step in as scientists and say, not cool. We, we can and need to do a better job of informing the public. One of the key, two of the key scientific principles around building this idea of an evidence-based is replication and reproduction. They're two sort of sides of the same coin. Um, when we talk about building an, ev an evidence-based, the more studies, the better. Especially studies that replicate earlier findings. What do I mean by replication? When a study uses the same methods as an original piece of research to see if the second, third, or fourth study can achieve, achieve similar results. That's how we build an evidence base. We also build an evidence base through reproduction. Some types of studies cannot be easily replicated. And so we have to change up a few things. For example, we might change up the methods a little bit because when we move the study to another location, we don't have the same types of resources. However, if the principle underlying the first study holds true, it should hold true when it's rep replicated and reproduced in a whole bunch of different contexts. Let me use an example. If a particular strategy for dealing with, um, let's go, let's talk about the elderly. If there's a particular strategy that works in reducing um, people from the elderly from wandering away or becoming lost, then we should be able, and that strategy worked in one study, it should work in a whole bunch of other different types of studies, in different contexts, different places, with different resources, and certainly with different researchers. That is what we mean when we talk about an evidence base. One of the sources that a lot of people are not familiar with in the social sciences, and this breaks my heart, is something called the Campbell Collaborative, the Camp or Campbell Collaboration. Um, the Campbell Collaboration is based on something that came out of medicine, which is called Cochrane, the Cochrane, I want to say collab collaborative, but collaboration. 
we're getting to the part where I'm gonna get coffee soon. I'm really looking forward to that part. So what is Campbell? Campbell is a group that funds studies that assess the evidence based on important public policy to topics. So stuff around health, stuff around mental well-being, stuff around children, stuff around crime. If you haven't checked this out, you should. As a great resource for a lot of different types of questions. Like if you are going out to study something on health, you should look to Cochrane and Campbell to see whether or not anybody has systematically pulled together the research evidence on your topic. So the thing I like about Campbell is it is written in clear, accessible language, which is something I'm going to be emphasizing for people that take this course. You need to be able to write so that anybody can pick up your, re your writing and read it and understand what you're talking about. The other thing I like about Campbell is that they have an overview, so you don't need to get into the weeds on all the different studies, but if you do like to get into the weeds, meaning you like to understand the methodology, what was included, what was excluded, you can do that as well. Um, this was an anti-bullying study and they did a systematic review that showed that school-based anti-bullying programs are generally effective in reducing bullying and victimization by about 20 to 23 percent for bullying and victimization by 17 to 20 percent. The, the other thing is they will tease out important issues that need to be considered so parents are important. Um, they also found different elements of anti-bullying programs that are found to be more effective. Oops, and I cut this right off. So the good news is I will put this slide that I've managed to somehow cut off. I will put this slide. Oh, damn it. Really is coffee time. Um, I will put make the slide available to you. This is from Jerry Ratcliffe. Uh, he's a colleague of mine at Temple University who studies um, creating research evidence for police practitioners to make better informed decisions. And he created this thing that I think is brilliant and can be used in a whole variety of different contexts outside of criminal justice. It's an evidence hierarchy for policy decision making. First of all, for those of you that are really like your nuts and bolts methodologist, you love you love this kind of stuff. You need to check out um, Dave. Was it David Weisbird, Larry Sherman? I think Farrington. There's something called the Maryland Scientific Methods Scale. The MS. MS. There you go. Maryland Scientific Methods Scale. And what they did was they they some social scientists created a scale that this evidence hierarchy is based off of and what they and it's for qualitative research quality I need coffee it is for quantitative research at the top of the scale is randomized control trials using multi-sites and so on and all the way down to you know your typical pre-test post-test one site non-random. Non, non, um, non this is based off of this. And so in Jerry's Ratcliffe's view, and this is the, 
The most common type of uh, evidence that is used by practitioners, as well as, let's be honest, a lot of policymakers, is expert opinion, anecdotes, and case studies involving one, one site. Or commercial or internal non-peer-reviewed research or reports. Now, I get into a lot of trouble for people that love what we call gray literature. Gray literature is, I, I do a little study and I post it online. It's not peer-reviewed um, and it's publicly accessible. Well, I always say don't use gray literature unless you're absolutely stuck. And the reason why is because a lot of gray literature in my field includes evaluation research that is done by professional evaluators who are essentially paid to find the positive result that their clients want. That's just the very cynical but true version of why I don't use gray literature in my field. There are better and worse sources of gray literature, but I've just made a blanket sort of, I just try to avoid it whenever possible. Um, why? Because again, and Jerry says the same thing, because companies want a positive evaluation. One of the most egregious examples of this phenomenon I've seen, I was asked to sit on a, um, a review body that was governing an evaluation. And the evaluation in it, they cited a bunch of different sources of data that they said they relied on, but those sources of data, first of all, how they used them wasn't articulated, and also, that's against transparency, and also the data disappeared, like it wasn't referenced in any of the results or findings. So they said they cited something that they didn't appear to actually use. And I happen to know why they didn't use that data. Because that data wasn't useful. It did not, it did not support the finding that the program worked. So they said they used it, but because it didn't give them the, the results they wanted, they didn't say that. They were not transparent. That's why I'm a big skeptic. Then we can talk about one-off measure. So one-off measure with no comparison site or group is what we call standard pretest, post-test. You measure a phenomenon at baseline, you implement an intervention, new policy, program, or practice, and then you measure the supposed effects of it, you know, three months, six months, or a year later to see whether or not it quote unquote works. That is very commonly used when people do actually do some type of an experiment. Um, and then we're not going to go through all of this, but you can take a look through. Jerry identifies what he says is, and I agree with him, in terms of what is the best evidence, systematic reviews and meta-analysis of quality studies. That's our little bias. Again, I'm going to tackle that. It's a, I'll be honest, it's a bias that I kind of share, but not totally. But we'll, I will critique my own bias later on again when we talk about Pawson, who says we should include everything. Um, Jerry rates randomized controlled experiments up there as the highest level of evidence that we can use. Why? Because the point is to try to eliminate the, the bias from the, evalu the evaluator's bias, the organization's bias, the public policymaker's bias, because when we implement something, we typically want it to work. And I've seen again, over and over again, 
this level of bias come in and when the, even when the, in terms of data interpretation when you don't get the results that you want well it's still words I'm just going to interpret this slightly differently randomizing and controlling an experiment will hopefully eliminate that this is something that I did for qualitative research we don't actually have a very good way of um, assessing good qualitative research for informing public policy. I've taken a stab at this. I say systematic reviews are probably the best for determining what works, what doesn't work. A good systematic review using qualitative or mixed methods research is uh, the probably the best way to get a grip on not just what works and why, but some of the underlying mechanisms behind why things work and why things don't work. Because we do not, in qualitative, we don't experiment in the same type of way that quantitative researchers do, I argue that, like Jerry, uh, commercial nonprofit studies where people want are more likely to have a bias towards uh, finding a positive result should be not relied on. Expert opinions, anecdotes, and case studies, poorly designed or executed studies. I'm sorry, I had a conversation with someone recently who was quite disappointed that a paper was rejected for having a small n. Even in qualitative research, I'm sorry, but a study with three people is probably not a good, well, it's, it is definitely not a good a basis for designing a public policy that will affect two million people. Um, so I agree with the quants on this. In terms of what's interesting, a single method, single data source study where you just rely on like interviews, one set of interviews, one set of focus groups, um, or you use a sampling frame with a uh, representative population. So, I, you know, you can actually do that in qualitative research. I think that is much better than using a single method with a small n. I think mixed method studies are probably going to give you better quality uh, information for making public policy as are triangulated studies, studies that use three or more different methods or data sources, or quadrangulated, use four or more different methods or data sources. So again, um, this is my sort of way to try to help qualitative researchers think about what is a better evidence base versus worse. I'm not going to lie to you when I put this up, a bunch of qualitative people in the UK got their knickers in a twist oh, you can't say this and we don't want to buy into the quantitative mindset of we are different and, and you know, positivist and blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing. If you're trying to affect public policy, which as evidence-based practitioners we are trying to do, then you need to have some credibility behind what it is that you're going to promote. And it needs to be methodologically rigorous, rather, whether that is qualitative or quantitative. So we need to start having these discussions as scientists and shutting them down and saying we are different. Well, then don't be surprised when you are not called upon by policymakers to affect to help affect policy change because you've basically excluded yourself from the discussion. 
They, these are tough discussions. They're, this is not what I'm proposing here is not the end all be all. It's a starting point for a discussion that we need to have, whether it's as quantitative researchers, qualitative researchers, or mixed methods researchers. And on that note, it is definitely coffee time. Thank you, and I will catch you on the